0: In the past, God spoke through the prophets to our ancestors in many times and in many ways. In these final days, though, He spoke to us through a Son. God made His Son the heir of everything and created the world through Him. The Son is the light of God's glory and the imprint of God's being. He maintains everything with His powerful message. After He carried out the cleansing of the people from their sins, He sat down at the right side of the highest majesty. And the Son became so much greater than the other messengers, such as angels, that he received a more important title than theirs. God didn't put the world that is coming, the world we are talking about, under angels' controls. Instead, someone declared somewhere, and he's actually quoting from Psalm 8 here What is humanity that you would think about them? Or what? are the human beings that you care about them. For a while, you made them lower than angels. You crown the human beings with glory and honor and put everything under their control. When he puts everything under their control, he doesn't leave anything out of control. But right now, we don't see everything under their control yet. However, we do see the one who was made lower in order than the angels for a little while. It's Jesus. He's the one who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of His death. He suffered death so that He could taste death for everyone through God's grace. It was appropriate for God, for whom and through whom everything exists, to use experiences of suffering to make perfect the pioneer of salvation. This salvation belongs to many sons and daughters whom he's leading to glory. This is because the one who makes people holy and the people who are being made holy all come from one source. That is why Jesus isn't ashamed to call them brothers and sisters when he says, I will publicly announce your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the middle of the assembly. The word of the Lord. One of the things that we tend to forget about Christianity is that it didn't come out of nothing. Christianity rose out of Judaism. It wasn't just something that was invented in the middle of nowhere. It was kind of a hybrid religion of sorts. And because of that, there was a lot of conflict in the early church. And we see the external conflict in stories like in the book of Acts, where Jews and Christians fought, and people like Paul felt threatened at times. And there wasn't only an external tension between Jews and these new Christians. There was also tension within the church. Jews that became Christians and Greeks that became Christians were arguing. And there was a tension within the church because they had this unresolved question. How Jewish does one have to be to be a Christian? What laws do I need to follow? Should I be circumcised or not? That was a big question then. Should we be worshiping on Saturday, which we know as the Sabbath? Or should we be worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week, which was the custom for the church? Now, everyone understood we're all talking about the same God here. Christianity did not invent a new God. They still worship the one God, the one in the Old Testament called Elohim, God of hosts, or El Shaddai, Almighty God, or the God that we know is being named Yahweh, which means I am. But who's this Jesus guy? How does Jesus make everything different? What's so unique about Him? The question of how Jewish did a person have to be in order to be a Christian was so troubling that it nearly split the church. There were some in those early days that proposed radical steps to help solve this issue. There's a early church father, whose name was Marcion, who actually said we should take the Bible and yank everything that is remotely Jewish out of it. But thankfully, voices like that didn't prevail. And so we stand here today with thousands of years of Scripture as testimony to that same God. But we need to realize how difficult this struggle was for the early church. And that's what this book of Hebrews is dealing with directly. It's trying to make sense of how Judaism and Christianity are connected. It was attempting to help those early Jewish Christians understand how unique the person and Lord Jesus Christ is and how He changes everything. So like I said, Hebrews was written to a primarily Jewish audience, and we probably think it was written by Paul or Timothy. And we believe that it was written sometime before the end of the first century. Clement of Rome, one of these early church fathers, actually quoted from the book in 95 AD, and so in order to quote a book, it has to be written before it, right? So that's where we get the date from. We think maybe it's sometime in the 80s or early 90s. And because of that, These believers were second generation believers. They were separated from the actual historical events of Jesus being on earth. These are people that probably never saw Jesus and more than likely, never saw any of the apostles. And yet they had faith and yet it was a vibrant community and some of them had become teachers. But it was also a time of crisis in the church. And get this, these are really, really unique circumstances. Here's the crisis. Some of the people were becoming lax in their attendance. <laughs> so that's the scene this book was received in. And when, when you write letters like this, there's two major types of speech. The first of them is called exhortation. That's the one we're more familiar with. That's when someone is literally standing up there telling you what to do to repent, to change, to become a new person, to get out there and do something. That's exhortation. But there's this other type, it's called exposition. It's where the author helps to explain what's going on, helps the church understand how something works or who someone is or what God has done or is doing. And that's what's happening in today's passages. It's exposition. And in many ways, that's what this sermon is. It's helping us to try to understand who Jesus is, what makes Him so unique. So I want you to bear with me today. There's not going to be a lot of application. I'm not going to leave you with three points of what to go home and do, but it is my hope that when we begin to see Jesus as being unique, it changes us at the core, helps us appreciate our faith, gives us a stronger connection to God, builds trust. Brian, you have a slide. If you go ahead and throw that up there. These first four verses from Hebrews, I know it's kind of hard to see, but you're going to see it's for a reason. These first four verses from Hebrews Hebrews are pure poetic genius. And there's a real shame that we weren't all forced in Sunday school to learn how to read Greek. (laughs) Because in Greek, this is beautiful. It's this style of writing that's called a period, which means it's circular. It builds upon itself in each new section, but ultimately comes back to its original point. So it begins with God speaking. Speaking through the messengers in the past, through prophets, and now speaking through a Son. A Son that is God Himself. A Son that is fully God, who is with God at creation. A Son that cleanses God's people. A Son that is God's ultimate messenger. And see, it comes full circle to say about how God is speaking today in these last days. The sentence in Greek is full of alliteration. In the first 12 words of it, five of those words begin with P. I'm going to butcher this, but I want to, I want to try to read this in Greek to you. kai polyterospos. Halai a la tois P P it's supposed to be this beautiful poetic thing. And the sins is full of contrast about what God did in the past and what God's doing now, and it uses adjectives over and over, and it covers all of time, pre-existence, before creation, to the incarnation of Christ, to the ultimate eternal life with God. And here's what we don't realize. These four verses are one single sentence. It's a lot of commas if we were to write it that way. Except that's the funny thing about Greek. There's no such thing as commas, and there's no such thing as spaces between words. (laughs) So, in one huge sentence... All of this was written about Jesus. Paul tells us how God used to speak to His people in the past, and he describes it as being in three different ways. You see, God used to speak in short episodes. We'd see God speak to His people through the Exodus, the flood, with the exile from Egypt, Eden, in the Babylonian captivity, in the building of a temple, and the finding of the Book of Law. But God spoke sporadically. They were episodes unto themselves. God spoke in segments. And seemingly years and decades, decades and generations went by where God wasn't speaking. So God spoke sporadically. But God spoke in many different forms. God used voices. Here I am, Lord. Eli responding. Hearing a voice. God used events. God used visions. God used dreams and stories. And these things we call theophanies, meaning visible manifestations of God, like a pillar of fire, a burning bush, a burning pot, and even a stubborn donkey. So God spoke sporadically, but God spoke in a ton of different ways. And God also spoke powerfully through these people we called the prophets. These individuals felt God's call to speak up against injustice, speak out against Jews who were abandoning Yahweh for other gods to advocate for the poor and the widow and the orphan, to remind Israel who their God was and how they were God's chosen people. But that was then and this is now. And and Paul says that God now speaks differently in these final days. So what does he mean by these final days? Or some people say the last days. The thing is, we don't understand the level of urgency which was felt by those earlier Christians. Most of them lived their lives fully expecting Jesus to return during their lifetime. After all, Jesus promised this. He said, I will return. He told them where to look. He told them of the signs. We don't necessarily think that way. We're not born, we don't grow up in faith expecting the return of Jesus in our lifetime. Most of us expect to live and to die, and to meet Christ upon our resurrection. But we live in a culture that's obsessed with knowing when the end may come. Within the last couple years, we had an elderly gentleman predict two different dates when Jesus would return. And some of the people were so convinced that he was right that they sold everything in order to go out and tell people about it. But most of us don't live our lives thinking today is the day or tomorrow could be the day. We make elaborate plans for the future. We talk about being smart with our time and our money and our health decisions to make sure that we live long and fruitful lives. But as Christians, we should live with a holy expectancy, expecting the return of Christ. And so we need to be able to hold these two competing ideas in our mind at the same time. Knowing, on one hand, it's been a long time since Jesus left. But on the other hand, knowing that we should expect him any day. And that's what Paul means when he says, in these last days, or in these final days, these are the days of expectation when we're waiting on Jesus to come back. And so now, as we wait with hope for the return of Jesus, Paul is saying that we experience God speaking differently. In the past, God spoke through episodes, stories, visions, dreams, prophets. God spoke sporadically, and now God speaks through a son. Jesus became fully human so that we might see, know, and hear God more clearly. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, advocating for us, continuing to communicate to us and for us. Do you see the contrast? In the past, God spoke sporadically. But now, God's voice through Jesus can be heard in any moment. In the past, God spoke through select prophets and priests but now, because of Jesus Christ, we are all prophets and we are all priests. That's what makes Jesus unique. He is the ultimate messenger of God. But I don't want to stand up here and give you the illusion that hearing God speak through Jesus Christ in your lives is easy. God never speaks so loudly that if you're just walking in the casual vicinity of God, you hear God yelling out to you. It often doesn't work that way. And so we have to train ourselves to hear Jesus' voice speaking to us today. And we say, God can always communicate through nature. I'm sure many of you can remember powerful experiences in your lives when God has confronted you through the beauty of creation. My mother the other night on the phone told me about a recent experience when she was viewing Lake Tahoe from Inspiration Point and how that was a moving experience for her. But we need to remember, as great as that is, we have always affirmed God can speak that way, but God, through Jesus Christ, speaks more wisdom and truth and power through people, relationships, Scripture, and events than in nature alone. That's why learning to see the image of God in others is so important because you never know who Jesus might be using to speak to you. So what makes Jesus so unique to those early Christians and to us? Because God is speaking in a new way. Through Jesus Christ, the ultimate messenger of God. Paul goes on in, that, in the second part, which is actually from the second chapter, to say Jesus is someone that is both higher and lower than angels. He's higher than angels because He is God. He's the one who created the angels to begin with. But Jesus is also lower than the angels for a while because He became fully human. And Hebrews is unique among all of the New Testament writings because it talks more than any of the others about how Jesus is fully human. It talks about His humanity more than the rest. That was actually the first major heresy in the church, the Gnostic heresy. They weren't denying Jesus' divinity, they were denying His humanity. So here in Hebrews, Paul reminds us that Jesus is unique and that He is fully God and fully human, both above and below the angels. And Paul goes on to say Jesus is crowned with glory, Because of the suffering of his death, Jesus tasted death so we don't have to. And here is the last point I want to make to us, and it comes to us in verse 10. And I'm going to read it again for us. It was appropriate for God, for whom and through whom everything exists, to use experiences of suffering to make perfect the pioneer of salvation. I want to focus on this Greek word in here. It's archegos. And that comes at the end of the verse. Before we get to that important word, I want to say a couple things about this verse because it's challenging to us. Leading up to calling Jesus the pioneer of our faith, Paul says that suffering was used to make him perfect. That's one of the difficult areas in our faith. Why does suffering exist? And for that matter, why does God seem so enamored with using it to His purpose? But I want to challenge us today to hopefully see suffering from a different perspective. Challenge ourselves to see God as one who redeems suffering and tragedy, helps it make sense, helps give us purpose. God doesn't give you suffering, but God challenges you to endure it, to take it on, to experience it firsthand and therefore experience redemption through it. That's what Jesus did. He didn't avoid it. He ran headlong into it, knowing that it would cost him things, including his own life. He engaged it. He fought against it. He worked to eliminate suffering. And because Jesus Christ understands our human experience, it makes him uniquely qualified to be our Savior. That's why Paul uses the word perfect. It doesn't mean the way we usually mean it. We say perfect means to be without flaw, without error. And certainly we would affirm Jesus has no errors or flaws. Jesus did not sin, but that's not what that word means here. What it means is that Jesus was completely prepared. He was the right man for the right job. Experiencing the entirety of the human experience prepared him to create a way to save us. He could fully understand. He fully understands everything we have gone through. That makes him perfect for the task. So I wanted to say, I, I want to talk about that word archegos in this passage. And you probably heard this version of, uh, of scripture read different ways where it says, Jesus is the founder of our faith, or the author of salvation, or the leader of our faith. But here, the word is translated, in this translation, pioneer. Archegos, the pioneer. Its root word is argos, which is, or archos, which actually means beginning. But here we translate it pioneer, and that's a really interesting thing. I want to dive into that today. A few months ago, I heard about some climbers trapped on the top of Everest. Everest is only open for about a month out of the year. And I became fascinated with it. I, I wanted to know what it looked like and what it was like. What was the path to climb Everest? And I wanted to see the trail. I wanted to know the path to the summit, the different ways to get there. So I began watching this show on Netflix called Everest. I'd recommend it to you. It's, it's a reality show that focuses on a small outfit with a sparkling safety record and success rate for climbing the mountain. And this shows about six different individuals who contracted this company to get them to the summit. You know, the typical stuff, Sir Edmund Hillary first climbed it in 1953, but now hundreds do it every year. In fact, it's getting difficult because so many people are trying to climb it. And it is an insanely long and expensive process. First, you'll need enormous amounts of gear, climbing boots and crampons, layers and layers of clothes that can stand sub-zero temperatures, but can also be removed because due to the snow, it can get into the 90s as you're climbing as well. You'll need climbing tools and camping supplies. You'll need communications equipment. You'll need insane amounts of food because you're burning 6,000 calories a day. And all of this will cost you $40,000 for one attempt. Your journey begins, you fly into Kathmandu, and there you take a bus or a small airplane for endless hours, and you arrive at the original base camp that begins at 17,000 feet. You hike 11 miles from there to advanced base camp that's at 21,000 feet. And there you have to acclimate for up to two weeks because there's such little oxygen. You have to climb higher and then come back down each day. And this process helps you to double the amount of red blood cells in your body, which also makes you more susceptible to heart attacks. And pulmonary edemas where your brain can swell and push your eyes nearly out of your head. And you're still 8,000 feet from the summit. So finally, after the weeks of acclimating, you start your journey. You climb up a 2,000-foot solid ice wall to a place called the North Coal, and you spend the night there. And the next day, you climb up another 2,000 feet, and you spend the night at Camp 2. The next day, another 2,500 feet, and you spend the night at Camp 3, which is just over 27,000 feet and now you're inside something called the dead zone because the human body cannot survive more than 72 hours at that altitude. You're on oxygen. Your body cannot process food that you're eating, and so you are literally burning your own muscle just to power your body. And the next morning, You have to push and make the summit and get all the way back down to advanced base camp all in that day. Another 2,000 feet up. And you have to climb not one, not two, but three vertical walls. And if you're lucky, you'll reach the summit where you get to stand there for a glorious 10 minutes. And then you have to climb down 8,000 feet over the course of 11 hours to get back to advanced base camp. But in order to get to the summit, each year someone has to go first. And each year, that's Sherpas. They clear the way. They carry on their backs over five miles of safety rope that goes along the routes. They drop off hundreds of bottles of oxygen in insane places 27,000 feet up. They do this in terrible conditions with little or no support. If they fall, if they get sick and cannot move, they're stuck. If you die at 27,000 feet, no one's bringing you down. But Sherpas are uniquely built for that task. They are uniquely built for preparing the way up Everest. They're short and extremely powerful. In the show, you actually see them carrying people that weigh more than them down the mountain. Their bodies have no need to acclimate like the way we do. They don't need to double the amount of red blood cells in their body. They're just naturally made to live at that altitude. Their skin and eyes are darker so that they bear the brightness of the sun and the terrible conditions with much more ease. Oh yeah, if you don't wear safety goggles, you'll sunburn your retinas and go blind for a couple of days. That's Jesus Christ for us. He is uniquely suited to lead, to begin, to pioneer our faith. He showed us how to live and therefore created a path to God. He is uniquely suited because He is God's ultimate messenger who allows God to be speaking to us constantly through stories and experience and relationships. Jesus Christ is fully God and yet for a little while He became lower than the angels. He became incarnate human. He took on suffering and fully understands our existence. He has showed us how to live. He has made a way for us to God. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father. So to the early church and to us, that's what makes Jesus unique. That's what makes Jesus such a wonderful Savior. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.